Welcome to Hope and Heresy, Life on the Religious Left, where we wrestle with contemporary issues using history and theology as our guides. Our task is to reclaim religion for everyday people who want to live meaningfully without letting arbitrary doctrine or oppressive religious practice prevent us from asking big questions about our complicated world. I'm Reverend Sarah Lindsay. And I'm Reverend Peggy Clark, and we're Unitarian Universalist Ministers broadcasting from Community Church of New York here in New York City. Hi, Peggy. Hi, Sarah. We're back for another episode, and we have two guests with us today that I am especially excited about, because these are folks that I've known for about a decade. Um, And we're going to go ahead and ask you both to just introduce yourselves, tell us a little bit about what it is you do in the world right now for work, um, and then we'll get into our question. Um, So whoever wants to go first can just hop right in. I'll jump in first, hoping that that means Alicia will go first later. (laughs) I'm Mary Catherine Morn, and I'm the president and lead executive officer at the Unitarian Universalist Service Committee. I come to this work after almost 30 years leading congregations in Unitarian Universalism. So grateful for the opportunity to be bringing my own commitments um, to this new kind of work, advancing human rights internationally. And I'm Alicia Ford, and I'm the International Office Director at the Unitarian Universalist Association. I've been with the UUA for about, that's not even about, I've been with the UUA for 15 years on March 17th of this year. Um, And what I bring to that work is my own passion for uh, justice, for interconnectivity, and our this deep understanding of our interdependence as a species and with other species. In my off time, I'm a spiritual director and um, a cloud watcher. Well, thank you both so much for being here. I should say, in all transparency up front, I am a huge fan of both of yours. <laughs> so I'm really glad that, that you're here with us as our UU luminaries today. So we are, are posing for you the same question that we pose to all of our guests this season. And I I, I hear that Mary Catherine's hoping not to go first, but, <laughs> but let me ask the question. I know you, you've thought about it already. We sent this to you already, but the question is, what do you think is the central task for humans, for humanity in this particular historical moment? Alicia, I don't know, are you willing to go first? You know, I hear that Mary Catherine doesn't wanna go first, but (laughs) I really think she should. Alicia, I I will always do whatever you ask. (laughs) Thank you. I'll I'll jump in and um, really grateful um, for this chance to be with you, Peggy and Sarah. Love, love the minister you both do and appreciate being part of the conversation, but especially that you invited me to be in conversation with Alicia. That is just icing on the cake. Um, So I will start. Um, It's interesting, Peggy, when you rephrase the question just now, you use the word humans instead of humanity. And that Mm. is what caught me in the question. Mm. Mm-hmm. It's when you ask, what is the central task for humanity? Primarily my answer is I, yeah, I, I find the question impossible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I really am 
wanting to answer the question, what is the central task for us as humans at this moment in history? And I want to just say three things, and I'll say them briefly now, and hope that, you know, maybe we can come back to them if they resonate at all. And the first thing may be um, counterintuitive, especially since um, I think you've paired me with Alicia because of our international focus. Um, the first thing I want to say is the central task for us is to build strong, healing, local relationships. I think that is the first task that um, as human beings facing the world in the state it's in with so much um, deterioration and um, loss, in some ways not different from ever before in history and in mm -hmm. other ways entirely new because of the projection that we can see in terms of the outcome of that, um, that, that destruction that's happening around us and, and of course the climate um, crisis. So, so that's the first thing for me is to build and be in engaged local relationships that uh, build healing and connection. The second thing I would say comes directly from the work that I, I feel so privileged to get to do with UUSC, which is um, to, so let me say, so where I want to start with it is to say that UUSC's work is, is um, basically being in partnership with communities around the world who are deeply impacted by injustice and the denial of human rights. And that our model is to work with small local groups who are creating new models and building new ways of living together um, that are restorative and regenerative. In, in a world that is facing so much destruction. What UUSC's role, so that work is so incredibly important. I think it's, and I feel so blessed to be in constant contact with the stories from those communities of how they are creating change and frankly, saving the world. Um, UUSC's unique role in that, which is part of the second thing I wanna say is um, that we move money that the communities we work with are positioned in places in the world that have been left out, that have been colonized, that have been um, extracted from, stolen from, um, used, and, and are in, in the position they're in largely because of colonization and so on. And so moving money is a critical part of what we, in our position at UUSC, can do at this time in, in history. And then the, the final thing I, I would say that's not unrelated to those two pieces, but I want to bring us beyond the humanity piece, and that is to um, grow into a spiritual and theological understanding of creation that somehow moves the needle on decentering humanity in it all. That if if we can't if we can't make that change theologically, spiritually, and practically in how we live our lives, that that um, I actually just picked up Adam Kirsch's book, The Revolt Against Humanity. This is based on his Atlantic Monthly piece on how essentially what we've done is put ourselves in the position by by alienating humanity from the rest of creation, preparing ourselves for our own extinction. And I really you know think that that's that's so true that 
that we have alienated ourselves from creation and that there is one outcome from kind of positioning ourselves that way. Oh my God, it's so hard for me not to talk right now. <laughs> like, yes. You gotta hold it. You gotta hold it. But Alessia, we would love to hear from you. I don't know what you're thinking in terms of, oh, do you want me to ask the question again? With No, no. Um, you know, I'm just so grateful to you and Sarah for hosting these conversations, Peggy. Um, and I, I definitely don't feel, this is not humility, I don't feel worthy of being in this conversation. And, um, you know, I think I made a mistake in saying, oh, Mary Catherine, you go first. Because well, all I want to do now is just listen to all that Mary Catherine has to say. One, it's relentlessly practical um, and solution oriented in ways that I think really matter. Um, and so I'm like, I don't really have anything to add to that <laughs> because, you know, what you've gestured to or pointed out, the work that you're doing, Mary Catherine, I think is actually really crucial and important. And some of that work is related to uh, understanding the movements that matter, the local movements that matter, that folks can find creative solutions in their own context. And then how do we support the folks to do the work in their own context, uh, which I really appreciate. And then that second piece, which really matters to me, is um, decentering humans, humanity from the story. Um, I'm in this phase of life right now where I think, you know what, I'm an animal, I'm a creature. And that is, that is just, true. I am no different from that tree or that, you know, whatever out there. And so that really spoke to me. As I pondered this question, though, what I kept coming back to was um, a couple of questions, and they both feel um, uh, ethereal. <laughs> they feel completely ungrounded, but I keep coming back to them. And one is a riff off of Elizabeth Alexander's poem. And the riff is, what if we lived as if love is the mightiest word? Um, and I don't know that that question has a ready answer, but it's one I keep coming back to. And I, I think about Carter Hayward's um, love is not fundamentally fuzzy. It's not fundamentally sweet, but it is bound up in real justice for people who are living on the margins. It's bound up in real justice in the choices we make and how we form relationships, not just with humans, but with all sentient beings. That, that kind of love, what if that love were the mightiest word? How then will we live? I'm inspired. <laughs> I feel like, thank you both very much, we're done. <laughs> I didn't mean to interrupt you, Alicia. I'm sorry. No worries. I want to say that the second thing that I keep coming back to is something from Rilke. And um, I reread re letters to a young poet, you know, about once a decade. And often it's lived the questions is the piece that has leapt out to me. But this time around, I, I swear I've never read this part of the book before, but there it was, this piece about, and you know, I know I've heard this, as bees gather honey, so we collect what is sweetest out of all things and build God, right? So like God doesn't exist in the here and now, but it is 
It is by our doing, our building, our gathering, our being, sort of the best. And by best, I'm going to say, by being love-centered and justice-centered, that we, that God becomes. So that also has me thinking then about, you know, the central task is about how we are with each other in what Mary Catherine calls like in local ways and like hyper-local, even in family or in relationships between people, in relationships between people and the earth. I mean, the climate crisis is very present, but it's also about how our systems are in relationship and what we're bringing into being. I don't know what that says about the central task, but those are some of the things that, you know, the question evoked for me. Oof. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So there's this thread. Um, Mary Catherine, you use the term alienation. Um, and I feel like that's the thread that I'm sort of hearing, right? Is this question of alienation from each other, alienation from local communities, right? Like this sense of the maybe the central task is to like reconnect in in meaningful love-filled ways right as the foundation for doing the work of justice the work of change that like we're not going to see our um our species heal the planet until we reconnect to the planet we're not going to see an end to war until we connect to each other enough to understand our siblinghood and interdependence right that there's this sense of whatever the unfolding of human history has been, it has led to this real distinct sense of, of disconnection or alienation in lots of different ways. And moving into this, I actually love what you said, Amir Catherine, about moving money. Somehow that one blew my mind. I could feel it in my heart when you said it. And then going back to this concept of, of love, right, as the justice making, right, that it, for me, I'm tripping over my words because I have so much to say, but there's, there's this overall sense of community building, earth-centered community building grounded in a fierce love that that um, forces us to care deeply and know deeply each other and and the planet from which we come, this idea of I am an animal, but I, I talk often about um, nature and second nature that like we somehow think that we're, we're separate, like even just like the screens that we're on, right? It's all nature. <laughs> everything we have, everything we're surrounded by, our clothes, everything, it's all natural. It's all comes from earth. When we transform it to look different or to separate ourselves to protect ourselves, but we are, we are all fundamentally grounded in the same material. Uh, so have you read Lessons in Chemistry yet? No. Uh, it's it's an, uh, one of the bestseller novel. i sorry, I don't even remember the author, but it's about a woman in the 1960s. She's a scientist and um, she's teaching her daughter radical things, this daughter born around 1960. But the, the thing that disturbs her teacher the most is when this little girl goes into class and said, no, I'm an, you're an animal too. And it is so deeply upsetting that the mother is called into the school 
And, and for me, that comes to this notion of protection. And we are so confused about what, what is our security, right? We have it completely upside down. We think that separating ourselves, that building walls. I mean, and even those of us who are progressive have lots of ways that we um, kind of act out uh, this uh, tendency to protect ourselves through distance and separation rather than the kind of loving connection that that I think our faith is is centered on when we're at our best. You were both talking about hyper community, hyper local communities. And I, I do think that most of our healing is going to begin in a very specific knowing your neighbor, like literally who's next door and and building that relationship and who's across the street, who are the people if you're, you know, on your in your hall, like very, very um very intimate you know this is how we live and because i actually think planetarily we're gonna have to shift a lot of the way that we live this is this is who we grow food with this is these are the people we share water with right and it's to start thinking in terms of those smaller boxes i which is interesting to me because you both do international work and i and i also have this um tendency to be thinking internationally and i i don't understand borders and the ways that we sort of do as a country and yet while while the perspective might be huge I think that the healing is really very small the question then for me is and because I don't disagree I do not disagree about the value of hyperlocal community and does that then have the potential to disrupt that number two moving money around does that um discourage that, that broader international view that might encourage allowing the movement of money, right? Mary Catherine, you're talking about self-protection. I think about this a lot in terms of economics because I think that so often folks who make a bunch of money, the sudden impulse that, that arises is to protect that, right? To protect that wealth generationally, protect that wealth from, I don't know what, right? <laughs> Whatever theft that might be occurring, right? But so how do you, how do you get to a place where people are both hyper-local in their focus and their community building and also willing to share wealth and resources in vast, expansive ways that will actually make the difference for, you know, historically oppressed and deprived communities. Mm-hmm. See what I mean? I do see what you mean. I, I don't know who you were posing the question to, Sarah, but I'll say that this is sort of like a place of struggle for me. And the this is that when we start, when we think about the world, or I, I should say when I do, um, I'm tempted to think about it in terms about think about it in terms of the way the world is currently constructed, right? And so to think about how do I operate differently within the system that exists. And I find that deeply unsatisfying. But the other answer I have also feels a little bit unsatisfying and and pretty scary. The other, other answer I have is for the world to truly be reborn, must it not die? And must the systems that we know not crumble and die in order for something new to be reborn? Because Otherwise, it feels a little like we're just tinkering 
within a system that has far more power and influence than we do. And um, and then I say that and I'm like, oh my God, that sounds frightening. <laughs> <laughs> but then I go back to just, you know, I can't have this conversation without talking about Audre Lorde. Then I go back to Audre Lorde. I'm like the master's tools, the master's tools. So like, what do we do? Um, so, you know, part of my brain is like, well, isn't it a both and, right? You know, the both and you tend to the needs of what is present and what is here. And um, to the folks who are suffering deeply, like you tend to those needs that's your hyperlocal. You work with folks who have abundance, who understand the connection between the local, the national, and the international. You um, do the work of redistribution of wealth and resources and reparations. And at the same time, you're also doing the work of dismantling. Thank you and so much for that, Alicia. I really appreciate your calling us back to the painful almost impossible um, conundrum that we're in about that. I, what it brings to my mind, I had the opportunity just last week to be with uh, five of UUSC's partners uh, from Central America and from Nicaragua, we're um, in partnership with an organization, FEM, that that works primarily with women who are doing farming. And the most amazing thing about um, sitting with um, the, the leaders of that organization, the feminist visionaries, is that they are actually, I think they'd be great. It would be so much fun to hear how they would contribute to this conversation and it would be so different. Yeah. It would offer so much. But the thing I really wanna lift up is that what they're doing, they're buying land. They're giving land to women. They are building a new economy. This is in Nicaragua. They are also, they talked about how they're also having to, you know, follow these horrible laws. I mean, they are within a system that is impossible. And yet within the area, you know, a geography that, that they live in, they are buying land, providing land for women, teaching sustainable agriculture and create just literally creating new economies. So the building of new models is going on in so many different places around the world and, and close to us, right? It, you don't have to go to Nicaragua to see models like that. But for me, that helps me settle a little around the, the truth, which I believe you've said, you said it very pastorally, what, and it's, it's just incredibly difficult to hold that, that things must die. So much must die. Well, and I think that we're, we're actually seeing it die. I think it is dying. I mean, I think of something like in Nicaragua, that that economy, that economic system, I mean, it's not, it has, it's not fast, but they've been in the process of dismantling that system for like 40, 50 years, right? With people in these hyper-local communities who have been building up these tiny pockets, right? And we, they haven't reached, none of us have reached the critical mass where something really, you know, completely dies for us for it to be resurrected. But I think that we can see examples of people who are building collective power around killing the systems that aren't working. 
and even that systems are themselves collapsing. I mean, I, right now we can watch um, just post-pandemic, right? So many of our systems are collapsing. We didn't even know that they were, we didn't know they were so fragile. And yet I think that they they are, they're starting to fall in on themselves. And maybe part of our task is being ready with a new idea and being willing to live into whatever that, that resurrection might be. Maybe even letting go of the fear of its dying, which I can feel too. I mean, that there's a fear of the empty spaces. But it, it feels very rich. It feels like more intentional conversations around what those systems are and how we how we connect to our own communities and how we kind of get proximate with other communities. Uh, it feels like the there's tremendous hope in that vision. You know, I live in New York City. I'm on these like mom groups of Upper East Side moms. I don't live on the Upper East Side, but I'm in these. And, and I have to tell you that like, there's a system here that maybe will be the last thing to die. Do you know what I mean? So, so I hear you that there's amazing work happening all around, including in this city. But I can also, I can testify from one side of the equation too, that like there is some real death grip on the system, especially the, the system of economic privilege, right? And white privilege that is like, it's, it's going to die real hard. Like it is going to be, um, it is a long road to um, dismantling that and thinking about how that's going to go away, right? Or how that's going to come crashing down. That's the part where I get like, what, what do we do? How do we take that apart, you know? And yet, going back to this language, um, let's see, I'm not remembering where, if it was your language or or maybe it was from Rilke, uh, that God becomes. That was definitely Rilke. I wish I were that brilliant. <laughs> it It feels like maybe part of our work is making room that that we we are birthing i don't know how to say this and this may be like an edit 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 Maggie, having no idea what she's talking about <laughs> that we are this the concept that god becomes and that we are building up the new possibility in a rich spiritual life that we can share through authentic relationship and through the kind of pastoral response, Mary Catherine, that you were just noting, that kind of compassion and empathy, that while the systems feel strong, I mean, white supremacy and capitalism feel nearly unkillable in some way. I, I think that there's a way in which empathy, compassion, and authenticity can move us, I think it can be dismantled. I mean, it, it feels hopeless sometimes, but I actually don't think it is hopeless. I think we've seen in human history ways that we've shifted things in 
so dramatically no one could have imagined it and yet there it is i just think we're at that moment though i think we're in one of those moments that in 500 years they're going to look back and say that task seemed impossible and yet look look what they did i um i wholeheartedly agree with you peggy and um i think one of my central tasks is to let go of the notion that I will see something in my lifetime. Um, and I have enough ego that that's a hard task. And so it becomes a practice. Um, have roughly, I don't know, 30 years if I'm lucky left in me. And I don't, I don't know that I will see a different world, but that doesn't mean I don't work for one. It's almost a beautiful way right there to be bringing all of this to a close, right? We may not see the next world, but it doesn't mean we won't work for one. And give thanks for the glimpses mm -hmm. and um, the wisdom that y'all have shared and the questions, mm -hmm. and just your commitment to asking the questions and being in conversation. Those for me are glimpses that, that help to carry me. Thank you. Indeed. I echo that. This is the task. This is the work. I'm so grateful to have the two of you in the work and to be um, in any way near you all. <laughs> How you do it because your ministry is such a gift, such a complete gift to to Unitarian Universalism, but I think really to the world. The energy you put out is gorgeous. So thank you. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you.